open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We are planning to spend eight weeks on this passage. This is the second of those weeks. We'll be looking together at Peter's sermon, the content of the sermon this week and next week, and then the form of the sermon, what we can learn about preaching the following week. So actually back all that up two weeks. Starting the first Sunday of March, we will do the second part of Peter's sermon. So let's begin at verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and notable day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope. Because you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what shall we do? We should listen to your word. We should repent. We should embrace, re-embrace our baptism. Help us to do that today as we hear about the coming of the Spirit prophesied by Joel. The coming of the Spirit from your Son to your people. Father, give your Holy Spirit to us today to illumine our hearts, to awaken us from sleep, to fix our minds and free us from distraction and help us today to trust, to believe, to listen. Help me to speak boldly and with Holy Spirit power in the ears of your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why are the sermons in Acts so short? Peter just preached the message. I just read you the whole thing. Takes about three and a half minutes. From a three and a half minute sermon, 3,000 people were saved. Is that what the text is telling us? That where the church went wrong was in bloating the sermon? The answer is no. This is not a complete transcript of Peter's sermon. This is a digest, a summary, really even an outline of Peter's sermon. As verse 40 makes clear, to properly preach this sermon, just the points that Peter makes in what we have, would take about two to four hours. We're not going to take two to four hours. This morning, we will spend a total of about an hour and a half, probably, looking at this sermon together over the next, today and the next three weeks. The sermons are so short because they are the outlines of sermons. Luke is giving us the main points of what Peter said. And what did Peter say? Well, really he makes two points in the text that's before us. The first is, this is God keeping his promise to pour out the Spirit. The explanation of what you're seeing was already written in the prophet Joel, maybe as many as 900 years ago. That's his first point. Don't be baffled by this display of tongues. The Bible said this would happen. And then his second point is, Jesus sent the Spirit. This fulfillment of Joel's prophecy is the responsibility of, is the fault of, or better is the gift of, Jesus of Nazareth, the one you crucified six weeks ago. So we'll talk about the first of those points, primarily today, God keeping his promise to pour out his spirit. Next time, we'll come back and look at the second of those points, that Jesus of Nazareth is the one who brings last day's salvation. Today we'll look at the promise of the Spirit, pouring out of the Spirit, as prophesied by Joel. And we'll look just briefly at Peter's pivot. How does Peter get from verse 21 to verse 22? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, 
Jesus of Nazareth. How did you make that move, Peter? How do you go from Joel to Jesus? So we'll talk about that. What we'll see in the portion of text we'll look at, just verses 16 through 22, is that Pentecost means that God has acted in Jesus to bring last day's salvation to the house of Israel. The Pentecost event means that God has acted in Jesus to bring salvation to the house of Israel. God kept his promise. This, verse 16, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. As we'll see in a couple of weeks, Peter began by answering the question his audience was asking. As good preaching should. They're saying, what's going on? Are they drunk? What's happening? Right, Verse 12, what could this mean? So Peter stands up to answer that question. Here's what this means. This means that God kept his promise from the book of Joel. That's what it means. Because this is a sermon outline, it's intellectually demanding. You read this and you say, wait, where are you going, Peter? How do we get from this to this to this? Well, the answer is, Luke has left out all of Peter's transitions, all of his concluding uh, periods in his speech, and he's just given us the main points. It's an outline. But that means that it's full of gospel meat for hungry saints. The question the audience at that time was asking is, what does Pentecost mean? What does this event mean? The question we're asking is, what does Peter's sermon have to do with us? We aren't watching 120 Galileans speaking in tongues. Some churches, the service might feel like that. Ours doesn't feel like that. We aren't wondering what the explanation is of that. We're wondering about how do we take the events of Acts 2, the words of Acts 2, and apply them to us? The answer that Peter gives is, the Spirit is for God's people then, and He's for us now. Joel prophesied the coming of the Spirit then. The Spirit is here now. We are still seeing God keep His promise. Peter, naturally, says, here's the real answer to what's going on. This is what was spoken by Joel, and then he reads his text. Some preachers, even preachers that I've had the misfortune to hear, preach without reading their text, or seem to have no text at all. But that is not the apostolic method, here or in any of the sermons in the book of Acts. Peter goes ahead and reads the whole text, or perhaps even quotes the whole text, to his audience. He gives them a nice five-verse chunk right out of Joel 2. Here's what Joel said. It will come to pass in the last days, says God. What points does Peter extract from this? The first one that I want to look at is that the Spirit is for all flesh. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. That had already been symbolized by the tongues of fire dividing and resting on each one of them. There was no special class, say the apostles who got the Spirit, and then ordinary Christians didn't get Him. No, every Christian got the Spirit. Which is exactly what Joel had said. 
Spirit is for all flesh. That means that if you're living an unspiritual life, if you're living in a way that you could live without the power of the Holy Spirit, you don't understand what Joel said, what Peter repeated. Spirit is for every Christian. You have Him. You can live by Him. You can walk in His power. You can obey God because you have the Spirit. He's for all of us and for each of us. God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh and He has. So then Peter launches into this description from Joel of what happens when the Spirit comes. Prophesy, visions, dreams. And again, they shall prophesy. Verse 18. Is this automatically what we should expect to see wherever the Spirit is? That is, are these the signs of the Spirit in an ongoing fashion? Of course, various branches of the church have various opinions on that question. But I believe, and I certainly think the Scripture warrants this, that no, the Spirit comes and stays. The signs come and go. And if you read the entire Bible, most people are not prophesying, seeing visions, dreaming dreams. Those things happen occasionally at special moments in redemptive history. Those are not the ongoing reality for the majority of God's servants, even within the pages of this book. Just as I don't need to see my wife in her wedding dress every day to remember that we're actually married, so I don't need to see the signs of the coming of the Spirit every day to remember (coughs) that He came. Spirit comes and stays. Signs come and go. When you have the reality, you don't need the sign. We know this. Church growth Church growth gurus, wow, church growth gurus say, put up signage in your church. Somebody comes in for the first time, they don't know where the bathroom is. Have a big sign there that says restrooms with an arrow. You don't know that your church doesn't have signs because you've been in here and you know where everything is. You don't need the sign, you have the thing signified. And that, I believe, is what... Peter is saying what Joel is saying when he promises prophecies, visions, dreams in those days. Why do I say that? Well, because of what Peter goes on to say. Blood, fire, columns of smoke in verse 19. Those are not ongoing realities in the life of the church. I have often wished to get up in the morning and see the sun turned into darkness and the moon into blood but I haven't seen it yet. Does that mean that the Spirit isn't here? No, of course not. It means that those signs come and go. They arrive at particular times. Most of the time, they're not visible. Any more than prophecies and dreams are an ongoing part of the ordinary life of the ordinary Christian in an established church. But what do the blood and the fire and the columns of smoke mean? Well, they mean this, They mean that the last days are upon us. That's the major change that Peter makes here. Did anybody notice that? 
Joel says it will come to pass afterward. Just kind of a generalized time. After the salvation events of earlier in Joel 2, afterward I will pour out my spirit. Peter changes that from afterward to it shall come to pass in the last days. Not from a general time after these other events, but a particular time, the last days. What are the last days? Well, the last days are the days immediately prior to the end of the world. The last days are the time when things are winding up, getting ready for the big finish. Now, we're all familiar with those signals in various venues. We all understand how to say, it's been nice seeing you. Thanks for coming by. This was a good conversation. Right? We, we know how to drop the clues that say, this is coming to an end. You're free to go at this point. And there are certain people, of course, who won't drop those clues, and it's hard to extricate yourself. You just have to sometimes turn and walk away. Well, the last days, what are we saying? That as we look around at the cosmos, God is dropping those clues. God is saying, earth has had a good run. The human race has lived a pretty good life. Now this doesn't mean, per se, that the end is going to be in the next 24 hours or in the next six months. We've talked about date setting, right? Jesus said, don't do it. But the whole New Testament is what we call an apocalyptic document. And its whole thrust is the end is near and therefore everything you're doing needs to be evaluated in light of the coming of the end. Read the cues. Read the signs. Know the signs of the times. The signs of the times say that the end of the world is upon us. And the New Testament is so big on that that dumb Bible scholars read it and say, oh man, the apostles actually believed that the world was literally going to end within 30 years after the death of Jesus. And the whole New Testament is just written in response to the world not ending. No, that's not what the apostles believed. Rather, they were talking flat realism. The end is coming for each one of us. What stands between you and the judgment of God? Well, your next breath. How certain are you that you will take that next breath. How confident can you be that your life is definitely given to you for a certain number of years or even number of hours? What was shared at prayer meeting this week? Uh, A relative of one of the members of this congregation, I think, if I remember correctly, we were told that his cancer was diagnosed on Wednesday and that he was dead on Saturday. When the Bible says the end is near, that the last days are here, they mean individually, your time to die is coming any minute. You don't know when it is, so you need to live now in light of the end. But the New Testament further means, yes, the cosmic end is coming too. Jesus is coming back 
There's nothing left on the prophetic calendar before the return of Christ. God has done what He was going to do in the first coming. That's finished. Now, the second coming is the next event. We are in the last days. Now, what is odd about the last days is that it is a time when two powers are loose in the world. The power of death... We're familiar with that one. I just mentioned it. And also the power of Christ's indestructible life. We talked about that last week with the day of Pentecost, the feast of first fruits being fulfilled. Jesus has risen from the dead. Amen. The power of his resurrection is now at work in the world, putting an end to the cycle of birth, death, and new life that characterized the world from the fall up till the present day. At the Feast of First Fruits, Pentecost was about wheat harvest. You plant the seed, the wheat grows up, you cut it down. That's the complete life cycle of a wheat plant. And the next year you start all over again. The Feast of First Fruits was fulfilled. That cycle came to an end. The principle of resurrection life triumphed, thus putting an end to the cycle of death and rebirth and bringing us into the era of eternal life. So when the New Testament says we are in the last days, it means those two principles are both at work in the world. The principle of indestructible resurrection life side by side with death, dying, and decay. One will have to destroy the other. And we know that Christ's resurrection life will destroy the power of death. The principle of resurrection life is working itself out now. That's what the last days are. And when the principle of resurrection life is finished working itself out, the last day comes. The consummation when God will be all in all. That's what we call the second coming. The return of Christ, the beginning of the eternal state, the resurrection of the dead. You know, name it. All the things that the Bible talks about at the end, those are coming, but they've started. It's begun with the resurrection of Christ. That's why... We're in the last days. Somebody died, and then he rose again, and he will not die anymore. His life is no longer subject to that earthly cycle of life, death, rebirth. That's come to an end. So Peter says, Joel said afterwards, what he meant was, last days. The time of fulfillment is here. The principle of indestructible life, which is the Holy Spirit, He's loose in the world. He's at work in the world. And so is sin, the principle of death. They're both at work in the world. They're both at work in us. Our outer man is wasting away. You've been resurrected already. You have Jesus' indestructible life spiritually speaking, and you have it inside a dying body. And sometimes the contrast is too much to bear. That's what the last days means. I have resurrection life in a dying world. I have resurrection life in a dying body. 
these two things are both at work, that's what last days means. And when life triumphs definitively, then it will be over. Death will be no more. So the last days are here, but the end is not yet. The last days are here, which means you and I must live in light of the end that is just around the corner. It's right on top of us. Because the thing that will bring about the end is the triumph of life. And in the heart of every Christian, life has already triumphed. So based on that, Peter essentially says, there are two other realities. This coming of the Spirit signals the arrival of the last days. And the arrival of the last days means two things. It means judgment and it means salvation. The principle of death is being attacked and therefore the principle of death fights back. The principle of life is fighting and conquering death. To conquer death is salvation. To be conquered by death, that's judgment. The coming of the Spirit enhances, heightens both of those realities. Hence the language about wonders in heaven and signs in the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke, the sun into darkness and the moon into blood. These are not positive images. I think we all understand that. If I get up in the morning and look out the window and the sun is black, that's not good. That is really, really bad. When I get up in the night and look out the window and the moon is blood, that's not good. Columns of smoke, not a positive development, right? These are signs of warfare when things are randomly burning all over the countryside. That is what the coming of the Spirit brings. So Peter, in common with the rest of the New Testament, says, as Peter himself says, the end of all things is at hand. The end is close. Jesus has sent the Spirit, and the Spirit is bringing resurrection life to bear Death is fighting back. So God is judging. But God is also saving. The coming of the Spirit signals the arrival of salvation. It it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Spirit is here. If you don't repent, that's judgment. He judges you. If you do repent, if you call on His name, He saves you. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? It means to recognize His character and to commit yourself to that. Let's say that you have the utmost confidence in Judge Morales. You know that he's a good man, a God-fearing man, Someone who always judges rightly with respect to the law and the facts. It just so happens that you're thrown into the dock before him. You're accused of something, and what do you say? Your Honor, are you Judge Morales? And he says, I am. 
You've called on his name. You're able to say, this is Morales. He will treat me right. He will judge me justly. I know him. I know his reputation. I know how he handles these cases. To call on the name of the Lord would be like calling on the name of Morales. To say, this is my God. God, are you Jehovah? And he says, I am. Right. And you say, that's all I needed to know. I'm safe. I am in the hands of Jehovah God. Jehovah is our judge. Jehovah is our lawgiver. Jehovah is our king. He will save us. Isaiah 33. To call on the name of God is to invoke God's reality, His character, who He is, to say, God, be who you are. Calling on the name of the Lord first appears in Genesis 4, when the godly line of Seth is born. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Runs through Joel and right here into the New Testament. Paul explains it a little more in Romans by saying, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's calling on the name of the Lord. And God, I trust that your character is everything that your name says it is. This is your name. I simply tell, right, I tell the prisoner, Morales has your case. prisoner says, I'm good. Morales has me. Jehovah God has your case. So you can call on His name and you'll be saved. Salvation and judgment are two sides of the same coin. That coin is the presence of God. Same sun that melts butter hardens clay. When God draws near, that's judgment, that's death for the sinner. When God draws near, that's life, that's salvation for the believer. So to call on the name of the Lord, to invoke Him, to pray to Him, to trust Him, to ask Him to keep His promises, to maintain His character and reputation. If you do that, you will be saved. Hence the statement that no one who ever truly prayed is lost. No one who says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and means it, can go to hell. Because if God is your Father, He won't let you go. He won't kick you out. Those who come to Me, I will in no wise cast out. That's what it means to call on the name of the Lord. To pray. To speak to God as Father and to mean it. If He's your Father, you have nothing to fear from the approach of His presence and everything to look forward to. So then the pivot comes. Peter finishes reading his text from Joel. We can surmise that he expounded the text roughly along the lines that I just did. But he moves from the text to Jesus of Nazareth. And we've talked about this. 
Is this legitimate? Was, did Joel have Jesus of Nazareth in mind when he wrote of the coming of the Spirit? And the answer is, yes, he did. You see, the Spirit didn't come from nowhere. The Spirit came from somewhere, or better, from someone. Behind the descent of the Spirit stands the Son of God who poured Him out from the Father's right hand. And that's where Peter is going with this. But he takes his time mostly, primarily, expounding how Jesus got to the Father's right hand. He doesn't give the payoff until verse 33. God received... This, uh, Jesus received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and then he poured out this which you see in here. If you're walking under a second floor window and you feel water running down your head, what do you do? You look up, and there on a straight trajectory right above you is the open mouth of a pitcher. And standing there holding that pitcher is your little brother, and he's laughing hysterically. But the water didn't come from nowhere, it came from somewhere. Peter pivots from Joel to work back up. Where did this Spirit come from? Who poured out the Spirit? Well, he's going to describe the name of the Lord, that is, the identity of Jesus, in the next part of the sermon. And he's going to explain... If you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. Who is this Savior? Who is this Lord? It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one who poured out the Spirit. He's the one who kept Joel's prophecy. He's the one who brings this last day's fulfillment. In other words, if you think Pentecost is about the Spirit, then you have to stop reading Peter's sermon at verse 21. Pentecost is about Jesus. Which is why Peter's Pentecost sermon is mostly about Jesus. Verses 22 to 36, all about Jesus. The Spirit is important. The Spirit is important because He comes from Jesus for Jesus. That's where Peter winds up. The whole life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus for the sake of which the entire Old Testament was written culminates here and now in the glorious coming of the Spirit. Jesus poured this out. Yes, the Spirit is responsible. He voluntarily came, but behind Him stands the Logos. The Spirit proceeds from the Son. So the arrival of the Spirit signals the last days. Yes, of course it does. But the reason it signals the last days is because Jesus came and did what He did and so brought in the last days. The work of Jesus is what has made this time the end time. The time when God is beginning the process of wrapping it all up. That happened the morning Jesus walked out of the tomb. So do you believe that? If you do, you share the Spirit. The Spirit is for you. If the Spirit and His fruits are not present in your life, you don't yet know Jesus. Joel prophesied that God would pour out the Spirit. What he didn't mention is that it was specifically the Son of God who would pour Him out. Peter now makes this clear. 
So do you look to Jesus as the source of the Spirit? Do you ask Him for His Spirit? Is that the primary goal of your prayers? If you read the prayers of the apostles in their letters, what do they ask for? They ask for the Spirit. Do you ask for the Spirit? For yourself? For your church? For your family? The Spirit is for all flesh. He's for every Christian. He's here. He's now. His coming signals judgment and salvation. Pray that it would be salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You showed wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Thank You that the young men prophesied, that the maidservants prophesied. Lord, we ask that You would help us to have the reality, to live by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to be Pentecostal Christians who understand that to live by the Word is to live by the Spirit. To let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly is to let the Spirit of Christ dwell in us richly. Father, thank You for Your Spirit, whom You handed over to Your Son, and Your Son then poured Him on us. Forgive us for grieving and quenching Him. Help us to live by Him this week and always. We pray for the principle of life to work itself out, for the kingdom to come, for your will to be done, for the last days to become the last day, for Jesus to return. We ask that he would come quickly. Amen.